listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and credo-Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here once again with Sky Sky. Sky Sky. It's always fun doing that. Oh yeah. I didn't butcher that one as bad as the (laughs) last one. That was pretty rough. You've had practice. Yeah. Ooh. Well, you'd think that I wouldn't have butchered the last one, but you know. Maybe my brain's in a better place today. What is, uh, you know, maybe one thing you don't think you'll ever be able to do? Oh, man. Watch a UFC fight? Oh. Couldn't do it. In person or just on TV or anything? Either. Someone could give me free tickets to the biggest fight of, like, the last 10 years. You'd be out. I'd be out. Yeah. Hmm. I feel weird even selling the tickets. Is it because it bothers you to see people beating each other near to yeah, that could be unconsciousness? Blood. Ugh. Is it yeah. the gore? You can't do gore? I can't do it. Can you do gore in movies? I, look, Braveheart's one of my favorite movies. I look away for half of it. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. The soundtrack's good enough to where I still have a good time, even yeah. when I'm closing my eyes. Yeah. So you, you never do anything medical. Oh, I can't do it. What about like, uh, so one of my kids lost a tooth today. What about that? There was blood on it. It's still, I might get a little queasy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So even when they draw blood or whatever, I always tell the nurse, you know, I, I, I'm scared of needles. I'm oh. scared of blood. Yeah. I'm scared of needles. Like, oh, you'll be fine. And then pretty soon, the wet rag is over the face. They're bringing me juice mm. and cookies. Really? Yeah. yeah. You just like the juice and cookies. That's all it is. <laughs> I, it, it, well, Give me the juice. I, I couldn't fake it. I couldn't, I couldn't do it on demand. Yeah. Even yeah. if I wanted juice and cookies. Yeah. What I'm sorry you? to hear that. What about you? I think blood is great. <laughs> <laughs> Necessary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing I don't think I'd ever be able to do. That's a, I mean, that's a hard question. That was, I mean, yeah, skydive. It's hard for me to think of something. I would. I think I would skydive. Um, I don't think there's any extreme sport sort of a thing. Well, I think if it. Okay, here I'll pick one. You, you have you ever watched those uh, rock climbing documentaries about the free solo people? I would. I've heard. Of I would them. go. I would go for that because I, I just think that's stupid. The free you know? climbing. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm not a rock climber or anything, but I've been rock climbing a few times. Mm-hmm. No, like no concerns about it at all. As long as I got a rope on me, I'm good, right? But climbing up a cliff that's three thousand feet with no rope to me <laughs> makes no sense at all. <laughs> would you cliff jump? Uh, I don't know I if think you've I would. There. Yeah. Now, I, all this with the caveat of because the question is, you don't think you'll ever be able to do? Yeah. You know, I could see myself being the kind of guy that's like, once everybody important that uh, was dependent upon me, if they've passed on before I have, I'd be like the bucket list guy. You know, it's like <laughs> let's do it all. Do it all. The eighty-year-old guy jumping off a cliff. Yeah, I, I'm scared of heights. Yeah. And um, one time at Lake Powell, I got so high up 
it was more dangerous to go back down than to jump off, but I couldn't mm. jump off. So everybody was waiting for me for like a half hour. And as I sat there and said, I can do this, I can jump off. And I just tried to tell myself, look, you go down, you for sure die. If you jump off into the water, you maybe die. Yeah. So take the maybe. Yeah. Right? Scary. Maybe is better. Maybe was better in that context. So. You survived. I did. And I, I did it again, but never a cliff like that. It, I think it was, if, I hope I'm not exaggerating my memory when I was a teenager. Maybe 78 foot cliff, which was high for me. Yeah. I mean, I, it was that terrifying. Is high. It was terrifying. I think it was like 100 feet you die or something like that. Well, I can't it's remember. It's good to know now. Is. Yeah. <laughs> There's something like that. <laughs> All right, good stuff. Um, we're going to start today before we get into the curriculum itself. Just reading an old ancient creed. This is from the Anti Nicene Fathers, Volume 1. And this is Irenaeus. Uh, and uh, yeah, this was all Schuyler's doing to put us on to this one. I love good. Irenaeus. Yeah. The church, though dispersed through the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She, being the church, believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the sea, and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God and the advents and the birth from a virgin, and the passion, and the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension into heaven in the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Holy Spirit proclaimed his future manifestation from heaven in the glory of the Father to gather all things in one and to raise up anew all flesh of the whole human race in order that to Christ Jesus our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess to him and that he should execute his judgment towards all, so that he may send spiritual wickedness and the angels who transgressed and became apostates, together with the ungodly and unrighteousness and wicked and profane among men into everlasting fire, but may in the exercise of his grace confer immortality on the righteous and holy and those who have kept his commandments and have persevered in his love, some from the beginning of their, crea- of their Christian course and others from the date of their repentance, and may surround them with everlasting glory. Sounds pretty Trinitarian there. Oh, yeah. I think that, you know, Irenaeus was pre-Nicene. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> by a good measure. Yet one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. He must be part of the conspiracy. Really prominent leaders held to that, looks like, from the very beginning. Yep. Uh, that's always good to get into those ancient creeds and Love be it. reminded what uh, the church was confessing. And it's good to hear Irenaeus even really saying this is the rule of faith. This is what every believer everywhere affirms. And uh, just good reminders there. You know, that's our God. All right, so let's get into the curriculum now. We're going to be looking at the 
Material that is dated in the curriculum March 20th to the 26th. If this happens to be your first time with us, we are two evangelical Christians. We've called ourselves on this podcast Creedal Christians who are interacting with the Come Follow Me curriculum, which is the official curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known to many evangelicals out there as Mormons, but preferred to be called by themselves as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So we're going to be looking at the curriculum that everyone in their church will be looking at in their Sunday school lesson for March 20th to the 26th, and they are following the New Testament this year. So we are looking specifically at their interpretation and dealing uh, with the passages Matthew 13, Luke 8, and Luke 13. Now, having said that, most of this curriculum focuses on Matthew 13, not a whole lot in Luke 8 and 13, but I think they clump the two together because there are some similarities between the two passages, specifically with the parable of the sower, which is going to be our main point of emphasis today. So the title of this lesson is, Who Hath Ears to Hear, Let Him Hear. And then we get into the curriculum. And, uh, of course, you've got the invite sharing going on again. And then it gets straight into the teach the doctrine. And the first passage that is listed under the first subheading is Matthew 13, verses 1 to 23. And that is the parable of the sower. But uh, not only that... It also has to do with the purpose of the parables and the way that parables ought to be understood and interpreted. So we will get into that some as well. But uh, first, the subtitle of this very first section is, Our Hearts Must Be Prepared to Receive the Word of God. Okay, so again, here is the continued focus on our doing and not on God's doing. It's our hearts that need to be prepared to receive the Word of God. Just notice the consistent pattern of do, 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 do. You know, what do you need to change about your life? It's always jumping straight to that. And uh, that shows, I, I think, very clearly, again, that the LDS religion is a religion of do, a religion of works. Uh, really, works are the basis of your salvation. You have to work your way towards it. That's very different than the gospel that we preach, which is a gospel of done, Christ has completed the work. He has accomplished our redemption, and that redemption is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. So we do not play any active role uh, in our salvation fundamentally. It is God's action towards us in Christ and by the Spirit that we receive, and as we receive it, then we begin to walk in Him. And that's when we do the do, is after we've been changed by the gospel. All right, had to get that in there at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So the uh, section goes on, by the way, to say, our hearts must be prepared to receive the word of God. And then I just want to read a little bit here. It says, ask the class members to search verses 18 to 23 of the text in Matthew, looking for what might cause our ears to become dull of hearing. So what is it that might cause our ears? Now, that's an important assertion hidden mm -hmm. in those very words, because as you pointed out, Skyler, even before we started the podcast, the, uh, the assumption there is that our ears are not dull of hearing naturally. Yeah, It's that they become dull of hearing because we're not doing something right. Mm -hmm. right? And notice all of the causes are external things. Yeah. It could never be a problem like in, in you. your heart. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Which is exactly what the Bible actually teaches. Right, post-fall. Is that 
our hearts are corrupt and unable to respond to God. Um, you really go, folk, if, if, if that's confusing, you go uh, just meditate on Romans 3. What direction are we receiving in our day? This is the curriculum from God and his servants. Okay, there's another key as we see that being a consistent pattern. So what is the word of God then? Well, clearly it's not just the Bible uh, because what direction are we receiving in our day from God and his servants? Well, who are his servants? The next question is, how can we cultivate good ground to receive their direction? Whose direction are we needing to receive? Who are the servants that we are talking about here? You might invite a few class members to, te- to co- each to come prepared to teach a section from President Dallin H. Oaks' message, The Parable of the Sowers. So who are the servants that we need to be ready to hear from and receive the good? How, how do we cultivate the good ground to receive their word? Well, this isn't talking about the same word that we mean as evangelicals when we say the word. When we say the word, we are referring to, uh, really in a in kind of a double sense, we could be referring to Jesus, but Jesus is the God of the word, which the word being the 66 books of the Bible, the Old and the New Testament. And so there's a uh, a set standard of how we understand who God is written down in the scriptures. And uh, we've continued to talk about that in every podcast up to this point, just about. Um, so <clears throat> we'll probably work through some of that Oaks message there. But uh, the next subsection goes on to cover Matthew 13, 25 to 35 and 44 to 53. And uh, just so that you know what passage that is covering, it's talking about the parable of the weeds. Um, so, of course, that's the parable having to do with uh, the wheat, the weeds, the, them growing up next to one another. And, you know, at what point do those two things become separated? Um, that's kind of the, I guess, root question in that particular passage. And we think it's clear, but there's even a different understanding between our belief on that and LDS belief. Um, And then there's the, of course, explanation of that as well. And then there's several parables being alluded to that have to do with the kingdom of heaven as well in those sections. So the subtitle in the LDS curriculum is Jesus' parables help us understand the growth, destiny, and value of his church. And uh, there's a question, what do we learn about the value of belonging to the church from the parables of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price found in Matthew 13, 44 to 46? What blessings have come as different members have belonged to the church? So the exercise there is to kind of think about the ways that being part of the church has been such a blessing to uh, the members in their lives. And then the next section is Matthew 13, 24 to 36 and 36 to 43. The subtitle there is at the end of the world, the Lord will gather the righteous and destroy the wicked. How can we keep, how can we keep, this is a question of application. How can we keep our faith in Jesus Christ strong when wickedness is all around us? How can Christ help us and then it alludes to doctrines and covenants. And then under the additional resources, which is always helpful to see what they're doing there, there is a subtitle that says, We Should Nourish the Good. And uh, I'll just read that whole quote just so that we kind of understand where the LDS teaching is coming from. This is from Elder Tom Perry. 
It says, that old enemy of all mankind has found as many devices as he can think of to scatter terrors far and wide. He has found ways to have them penetrate even the the sanctity of our own homes. The wicked and worldly ways have become so widespread, there seems to be no real way of weeding them out. They come by wire and through the air into the very devices we have developed to educate and entertain us. The wheat and the tares have grown close together. A steward managing the field must, with all his or her power, nourish that which is good and make it so strong and beautiful the tares will have no appeal either to the eye or the ear. Okay. I mean, we might say something similar to that, but we have a slightly different meaning behind it. Okay, well, let's go ahead and jump on back uh, to the beginning of Matthew 13, and specifically the uh, way that we're going to deal with the uh, parable of the sower. And uh, Skylar, I'm going to turn it over to you and uh, just let you give us a little bit on LDS and their dealings with parables, um, if you want to talk about that a little bit generally and then specifically into some of the interpretation of the parable of the sower specifically. Well, I thought that Ridge's definition was worth noting. A parable is a story which is used to teach us about real-life situations. It's kind of a, <laughs> kind of a weird yeah. definition. Um, and on the parable of the sower, it, it's good to know that I mean, this is a very key parable in all three synoptics. I mean, it you got to get this one right if you're going to get parables right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, um, Oaks, just, just listen to the subtext describing the talk on the parable of the sower. It is up to each of us to set the priorities and to do the things that make our soil good and our harvest plentiful. Notice it's not only make our soil uh, good, but it's for the purpose of our harvest. Yeah, and, uh, which I, maybe yeah. you said this, I didn't catch it, but yeah, that's the that's the explanation for the whole talk. That's kind of like the subtitle yes. at the very top of the talk. Mm-hmm. What is this going to be about on the parable of the sower from Elder Dallin H. Oaks? It's up to each of us to set the priorities and do the things that make our soil good and our harvest plentiful. Very, very man-centered. Very. Again, right? and, and to show that's... I mean, if that's not clear enough, uh, toward the bottom of the talk, as a summary, how can we prepare, this is Oaks, how can we prepare ourselves to be that good ground and to have that harvest? We have the seed of the gospel word. Well, we would debate that. It is up to each of us to set the priorities and to do the things that make our soil good and our harvest plentiful. He even says, we achieve this conversion Conversion is something achieved. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's more I could say on this, but there's just more I want to, you know, get to. But it's not a particularly good talk if, if uh, you're waiting for the punchline uh, on that. I I just think, once again, you see this pattern throughout of missing the whole point, not giving any information to aid the people, their people in learning the main points. There's no real tools. They, I mean, there's, 
some kind of very shallow stuff that supposedly is there to help. But notice, like, even with, they have a section in the seminary manual that talks about interpreting and applying parables. And literally it says this, in addition to understanding their meaning in the original context, and that's good, but they don't do that. I mean, it's easy to say, but they don't do that. They say it is essential to seek revelation from the Holy Ghost to help us interpret and apply the parables for our own lives. And once again, on the surface, that doesn't seem like an issue. Mm -hmm. But as we've seen explicitly in the manual for the whole year so far, is often the Spirit is pitted against the Scripture. Um, So it would be one thing if the Spirit was guiding us to interpret rightly the Scripture in its context. We would affirm that. Yeah. But instead, it's often used as a means of getting around what it actually says, and instead of focusing on what stands out to you. And of course, within their worldview, they're gonna. It's not a surprise they're gonna interpret those things within the very worldview that they have. Yep. And bring to the text rather than the worldview of the text, um, and what Jesus teaches through it. So. Yeah. Um, can we go through the parable of the sower? I think let's do it. Okay. Let's, yeah. Let's get, um, let's get into and, it. So, and, and then yeah. it, it asks to compare it with First Nephi eight and Alma thirty two, if we have time, which is an interesting challenge. And those who have read those chapters will be like, "How does that relate to the parable of the sower?" Let's let's find out ourselves. Yeah. So let me just start even just Please. by reading the first three verses here of Matthew thirteen. It says, "That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him." so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And let me just keep on reading there. And he sowed some, and, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, and they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus would frequently tell what uh, Matthew and other authors came to call parables. And there is a sense in which they are a story that is intended to teach a spiritual truth or perhaps even a a couple of spiritual truths to help listeners better understand exactly what the nature of the kingdom is. And uh, yet what we see, and we're going to get into a little bit of discussing this, the parables had another purpose as well. And uh, part of that purpose was actually a purpose of judgment uh, toward those who were not going to hear the parable and understand them. And that's a fascinating discussion that the, that Jesus has with his disciples immediately following telling this parable in uh, Matthew 13. So uh, let's, I mean, work through the parable itself first. And uh, I know you've got about a million notes of good things to say on that over there. So um, what are we seeing happening in this parable? For sure, to, to frame it, if that's all right, just really quick. Yep. 35% of Jesus' teachings are in parables in the synoptics. Yeah. Um, parables illustrate teaching, but they can also provoke new ways of considering it. And 
like you said, we're going to land on how it's a prophetic instrument as well. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this parable specifically, it's the first substantive par- parable, meaning lengthy story parable in all three synoptics. Um, and other than Matthew's parable, the wheat in the weeds, end of the net, the only with a detailed interpretation. It, interestingly enough, it and the wheat in the weeds are the only given a title within the scripture. And that's an interesting difference between Mark and Matthew, for example, um, where Matthew gives the title, and it's not what you would think. I think Matthew's doing something very interesting with that. Um, It's unique in the sense that it's given primary place at the beginning of parable collections. And um, it's a parable that also has a meaning in itself, but it's also about parables in general. All three place an explanation of the purpose of Jesus' parabolic teaching between the parable and its interpretation. And it's the only to which all of them attach the saying, let the one who has ears to hear, hear. All three quote Isaiah 6. And it's so it's pretty important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you see even in Mark, it says, if you don't understand this one, how can you understand any parable? So what kind of parable? There's lots of different kinds of parables. Um this one technically is called a fourfold similitude. It's um, a technical term for those who are interested in that kind of thing. Um, where, f- for example, when a simile, it's an explicit comparison using like or as, you know, red as a rose or whatever. Similitudes extend that out. Um, and often this, this form of parable, it lacks plot development. It's not like a, um, you have a name to the person like in Lazarus and the, the rich man or um, the Good Samaritan or, you know, something like that. It's, it's, it's more the relationship between the points that are being compared. Mm-hmm. So, no, there's action, no plot. And all three of them, the dominant idea is hearing. And this is key as well, hearing the message of the kingdom. That's that's the thing. So in Mark, the word Greek word for hear is there 13 times, Matthew 15 times, Luke 9 times. So this imperative here, which um, happens elsewhere. So for example, because I have to throw it in every episode, um, Jesus opens the Shema when he's asked what's the mo- most important commandment in Mark 12. Uh, this is the same word used, akuin. So it's, yeah, pretty, pretty important. We'll come back to some of the what it says about who Jesus is. But one point that I think is key, especially once we get to the Book of Mormon examples, is when we approach this, these, you know, we didn't dig this out of a hill Mm -hmm. with no sense of time and place and with a language we can't verify, let alone text we can't analyze. Um, This is really key because context is what determines the meaning, right? If you don't have a context, all you have for words are possible meanings. So it's, it's not just what we can make of it or a phrase we like that we can apply in our own way. The text uh, provides a context for the text as well, and it comes from a historical place, time yeah. and place, in real places, <laughs> yep. real peoples. This needs to be said because nothing like that exists for the Book of Mormon and never will exist for the Book of Mormon. Yep. So if the, vo- if the goal is self-exaltation or something like that, you actually like that you don't have a context, right? Because it makes it flexible to what you want. In mm. that sense, Mormonism is very postmodern. Yeah. It's very much what you can do with the words. 
Yep. Which I think is a benefit with the KJV to this day. There's other reasons they keep the KJV is the only translation they use. Um, but I think one of the reasons is the flexibility of old English yeah. based on what we can do with it. Yeah. But if the goal is the voice of Jesus, any other context than this one doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if we place parables in context of our choosing, right, like throwing in like this is about LDS general authorities or whatever, yeah, we could point out tons of examples of this, we're actually doing grave disservice to the honor of Christ, mm-hmm. right? We are changing it to make it more about what we want it to mean yeah. rather than what's actually being taught. Yep. And I think that's just key. So, you know, um, I could say a lot more on that, but... You know, with these things, these are real situations in a real context that can be studied. Mm-hmm. Like even the farming practices and stuff, you just can't believe how much scholarship has been done about it so that we have a better idea of exactly what is being said. Yep. But one thing that isn't disputed by many. Um, when I, with that, yes, um, the way that uh, I think an LDS person might be tempted to read parables is most certainly not unique to LDS people. No. I mean, there's been a lot of disagreement on how parables ought to be read. And so even the claim that this ought to be read as a simile, um, that's a stance that would be contrary to the way that some people who maybe would be on a little more of a liberal, theologically liberal into the spectrum might want to approach the parables. Um, you know, there's been this debate, should all the parables be read uh, pure as pure allegory? Mm-hmm. You know, where you, uh, you know, in a liberal perspective, can attribute whatever meaning you wanted to attribute to particular parts of the story and read in as much meaning as you desire to read into it, uh, whatever whatever insights you want to gain. It's more about what you bring to the text versus what the what the text is trying to bring to you. Um, and that's the idea that you're getting at. What we're saying and making a clear claim on on all of the interpretation of the Bible is that the Bible has a meaning, right? Yeah. And uh, as we talked about in the very first episode and approaching the scriptures, it's not that that meaning can't have some layers to it. I mean, we even see that working in parables, um, especially. And uh, so it's not that there can't be some depth and some layers, but the point is that we're not bringing the meaning to the text and whatever we want to see there. The point is it's in the text and we need to study the context of the passage and the grammar of the passage in order to try and discover what's being communicated to us by God. Right. Yeah. And there, there will be a range of meaning debated, Yeah, but none of them are going to think there's, um, there's no meaning or at you all. make up the meaning. Yeah. Right. Or it's not like Greek is a made up language like reformed Egyptian. Yeah. You see that? It's not like Jerusalem is a made-up city like Zarahemla. Yeah. Okay. We, we know at least seven to nine archaeologically excavated synagogues um, in this time period. To give us an example of synagogues, for example, there weren't white Native Americans worshiping in synagogues in North America or Central America ever. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just trying to say that, you know, once you start putting the Book of Mormon next to the Bible like they want us to do, um, it can be easy to, sorry, it can be, hard for someone who doesn't do the reading mm-hmm. and hasn't encountered Christians to tell the difference between a debate based on the New Testament and a debate in Sunday school at their LDS ward over the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Right? So, like, when we look at the, for example, the, 
the harvest, uh, one of the debates was had was what was the natural expectation of harvest in farming in first century Palestine? Mm-hmm. And though it's a debated question, we have a good educated answer that's not come from a dream or a vision or a feeling. Yeah. So, yep. so that's, I just, <laughs> let's get into the parable. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we don't have, of course, as much time as we want, but there's, there's four groups, right? We, we have the seeds are sown, the location, they who when they hear, and then the results. So the comparison is between different types of soils and therefore different types of people and how uh, various types of soil receive the word, or sorry, receive the seed. That's a comparison of how various kinds of people receive the word. And notice, um, this could be lost by some, that the difference lies not in the hearing, but in how you hear it. So there's a lot of depth to the word here. It, it's it's not just um, uh, even um, understanding the word said or even cognitively understanding it alone, but it's more. It's even more a commitment to that. Um, on the first group, right, we have the soil by the path, or in the Greek, it's the alongside the road ones. Hoi para tain hodon. I want to bring that up because uh, in First Nephi 8, the path is a big deal. So they have the soil by the path, and these died, right? When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And so you have this sense that they didn't even have a chance. They'd, you know, hardened themselves against the truth, therefore easily blinded by Satan. Mm -hmm. The second group, you have the soil among the rocky ground, or the rocks, the rocky places. Um, And they are, you know, when they hear the word, once again they hear it, Immediately they receive it with joy, right? But they don't have root in themselves, but are temporary. And that word is, and uh, Mark uses it, the proskenon. It's a really interesting word, actually, to do word study on. Um, they endure for a while. Um, then when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So notice this is a short-lived commitment these also died, but the, this, the point that's being made is about external pressure. This is apostasy under pressure, right? The threat to continued discipleship or the, you know, the heat of the sun exerted from social religious environment, perhaps. And notice they are exuberant at first. Mm-hmm. Perhaps they like the benefits, but once the benefits are gone and you're left with, well, do you love God? because he's the point, you know, they don't stick around. Perhaps it was a shallow understanding um, that turned into a quick rejection once they saw the actual truth and what it would cost them. This word uh, is used later in in Mark. Mark includes this, by the way, I should have said this, Mark 4 and Matthew 13. But interesting that um, this word for temporary is the opposite, is seen as a, it's compared to the word for eternal. So the, the, the contrast that you see even later in, in Mark's gospel especially is that this present, present age, which is coming to an end, is visible, temporary, this age. And there's a contrast between the coming age, the eternal age of God's glory. Um, it's more, it has like an invisible, eternal element, the age to come. Second Corinthians 4 has this as well. So... Um, it's, it's kind of interesting 
uh, Joel Marcus points out that this term also has a martyrological nuance. So, you know, that's part of why um, it's analyzed this way. The third group, the soil among the weeds or the thorns, um, and depending on which translation, how literal it is. What's interesting is thorns, if you think even in Genesis 3, it's often associated with suffering. So notice, though, the, this are, are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Mm. But they survive. So here you have a group that survives, but there's no fruit. Mm. And this is internal pressure that's being emphasized in, in term, in, instead of the external pressure. You have, you have divided loyalty. And then the Savior gives three examples of issues that um, are, are often associated with this. One is the worries of the present age. And um, the, the kinds of things people worry about when their lives are dominated by the values and standards of this present age. It's kind of interesting. Um, Voss might... Gerhardus Voss might identify as the opposite of heavenly-mindedness, which he said all Christians should mm-hmm. have. Two is the deceitfulness of wealth, right? The pursuit of an abundance of possessions. It's a, it's a deception because it cannot provide a fulfillment and happiness that it seems to promise, right? You're always looking for more. There's that God-shaped hole in every human heart that things of this world can never satisfy, mm-hmm. even though that's often what we turn to. Um because we think they can, or we're not consistent <laughs> with, uh, with ourselves, and we seek them anyway, even if we know they won't. Three, the desires for other things. Now, this might seem a weird one. I really liked R.T. France on this. He points out that um, this can seem like just a general etc., cetera, um, but it could be a little more specific than we realize. Um, he thinks there might be a word under this, um, that means excess or, you know, this kind of constant desire for more, mm-hmm. more generally. Um, and the pursuit of excess, I think, is how he, what he calls it. It's, it's interesting. But there's, so there's three things that he, the Savior, li- latches onto to show why, though these groups survive, um, they don't bring forth fruit. Let me read R.T. France this, this really quick. What is that issue here? It's not so much the possession of wealth in itself, but rather the mental attitude which it engenders. Hence the thought words. Um, they, they convey, as in its other New Testament uses, the sense of deception, even enticement, which threatens to seduce disciples from their true allegiance. And I like that. Just think of, um, to bring in Luke here, how much emphasis there is on the poor, because they see their own need. Right, um, that's very different than our age. Right, I'm I'm so spiritual. I'm spiritual, not religious or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we think we're so spiritual. No, no, you're not. I'm not either. Um, we need we need God. Now, this fourth group, and it's interesting. There's less attention given to it, but notice this group, the good soil. Um, it's they survive and bear fruit, and have hope of of an abundant harvest but i like um that it's you know often pointed out though that even the the use of the numbers this is a difference between mark and matthew how they 
use the numbers, but um, notice it's not this logical sequence. Perhaps teaching the same point Matthew does later in Matthew 25, that sometimes equally faithful servants are given different degrees of responsibility and likewise produce proportionally different um, results, right? That results are um, not in our hands. Right. So it's not like, oh, this equation, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Two plus two equals four or something. So I think, um, you know, some of the big picture takeaways from this, of course, a ton more could be said, is once again, what's the focus? There's a lot of things you could land on and um, including a really important one is who's speaking, who is the sower, right? Um, we'll come back to that. But what is the main point of this parable, right? The seed is important, harvest is important, identity of the sower is crucial. Um, yet notice um, other hazards to growth, like uh, drought, disease, they're not mentioned. And so the cause of the failure is not with the seed, Um the, the variable that determines the failure of success is the soil on which the seed falls. Yeah. And uh, this is where we can also get some insight into the, the agriculture of the time. People say, well, that's backwards. But um, there, there's ancient evidence that goes both ways. Um, in fact, it was an agricultural debate of the time. But uh, no, you could throw the seeds and then plow them in after. <clears throat> so it's, you know, this is, uh, they would have recognized what was going on as, as normal relatively normal. So the, the any valid interpretation of this, right, has to do justice to the harvest, but also the threefold failure, but also notice the threefold success of the one group, right? So there's a balance to it. Yeah. Um, it's on the receptivity, the conditions of the soil. Um, and I think it's, it's also um, ev- a warning, right, about how you hear this will determine in some way your fate. Yeah. I think that's another consideration that's really important about the parable is there's a sense in which Jesus is teaching the parable to the unbelieving listeners. And then there's also the sense in which he's teaching the parable to his disciples. And, uh, and so really in one sense, you've got two audiences that are both receiving the parable and the audience makes actually, I think a, big difference in how the parable is received. And that's a big part of what's going on in the text when you're looking at verses 10 to uh, 16, um, which is, I'll I'll just read that portion. It says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them. So this is a little bit odd, right, that Jesus is teaching in parables. Why isn't he maybe being just a little more direct in some way or, you know, um, which I think, by the way, that implies that uh, the disciples understood what was going on with Jesus' teaching, and they're wondering, why are you teaching in this way? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So you see, there's two audiences here, right? There's the crowds over there, and the crowds don't ever have a good connotation in Matthew, at least. They're typically the ones who are unbelieving. And then you have the disciples, who are the other audience. And Jesus said, he really divides between the two of them right there and says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of of heaven, but to them it has not been given. We're going to get into maybe some of that, what Jesus means when he's talking about the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. 
Well, does that mean that they're receiving some sort of Gnostic secret knowledge? <laughs> no, that's not what he's getting at. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven, anytime you see secret or, or mystery, which is the same, you know, it could be interpreted mystery there, but uh, anytime you see that, it really isn't talking about something that is being hidden as much it is, as it is something that's being revealed. So uh, what Jesus is getting at is you're understanding who I am. You're understanding that I'm the fulfillment of everything that's been predicted in the Old Testament. These other Jews are not getting it. They, you know, they, they, it's veiled to them. They don't get it. Their eyes are not being opened to the reality of who I am. They are hearing the same teaching as you, but they're not responding to it in belief. They're continuing to not believe in spite of all the miracles that he's done in front of them. Everything that he has taught them with such clear and powerful teaching, the crowds continue to flock to them, to him, but they still remain in their unbelief. Their eyes are not being open to the truth of who Jesus is, right? Uh, To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. So that's really significant language, right? Uh, It's whether or not you've been given given it. It's not whether or not you've cultivated the soil yourself well enough to receive it. It's whether or not it's been given to you. Or achieved it. Yeah. Yeah. For to one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, so that's the end of Isaiah, And now Jesus is saying, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So that passage is is latent with what we call in linguistics, I guess, in, in the Greek language, we call it divine passives. And Skylar, you've even used that phrase a few times, but I don't think we've ever explained exactly what a divine passive is. But a, a divine passive is essentially a verbal form that is a passive verb indicating that the one who um, the verb is referring to is a recipient of someone else's action. They're passive in it, and it's being acted upon them by by some something or someone. Of course, in this case, when we're talking about divine passive, we're talking about someone is the one who is causing this to occur. So this passage is indicating that those who see, those who hear, those who understand, understand not because they have been active in doing something to cause that, but because something divine outside of them, God, has acted in order to enable them to see and to hear and to understand. So for the one who is hearing the parable, they're going to have a clear and true understanding of what the parable means, not because they've cultivated themselves well enough to understand it, but because the divine has acted upon them, enabling them to see, hear, understand, believe. The crowds, on the other hand, are those who have not believed. 
And so there's, I mean, there's a very clear teaching in this text that is actually the exact opposite of what the LDS Church is trying to say that it says, which is that only by God's grace will you hear and understand and receive the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, disciples, be thankful. You actually hear and understand and believe. Yeah. And that's not because of you. That's because God. Yeah. What is more surprising, that anyone hears at all or that people don't? Yeah. And if you get the fall wrong, which they do, they want to say the atonement reversed the effects of the fall, but they also want to say it's the greatest blessing. You taught it's a good thing. Uh, if you get the fall wrong, you get atonement wrong. And um, this is part and parcel of like their view of man. They have a very, uh, I mean, at worst, people are neutral. And therefore, if they don't respond, they chose not to. They're in the driver's seat. Whereas the one of the points of the parable is the passivity of soil, yeah, right. It's not to undermine the judgment that's there for those who fall. Just as we are all sinners in Adam, we we deserve judgment, right? Like that's the normal part. The unnormal part post fall is that anyone responds at all, mm-hmm. right? And that's so that whole emphasis is missed. And part of that is they don't have the God behind this. Right, and therefore they don't have the Christ behind this. Um, this is one thing that's interesting: is if you were just to take the parable by itself, like let's say you just looked at the Mark version, um, you would think the emphasis, it, because it it is this is entirely wrong, but would be why, why not call it parable of the soils? I mean, the sower is one thing that's not defined, <laughs> but Matthew includes. Uh, the title as the sower, mm-hmm. right? Because there's a, there's this variable behind the whole thing that God is in control. And that even in the rejection, even in the evil we experience, ultimately there's meaning to it found in God, even if we don't immediately see why, right? And and that is part of what is the the mystery. But if you if you don't see the one... God and all his glory, and you don't know the Old Testament, you're going to miss that. You're going to miss that, for example, when Jesus, I mean, think of what the sea means to ancient Israel. They were never a seafaring people, right? So, you know, whereas because we have this kind of medieval view, we have like a, um, more of an emphasis on fire, though that is in scripture. Um, but to the the ancient Israelite mind, right? Um, think of like a dragon, but Water, specifically salt water, water that's deceptive that if you drink, you'll die, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's this kind of chaos, this kind of, um, well, evil that's there that God himself is behind, as you see in Isaiah 45. Yeah. And um, so when he goes out onto the sea and you see him over the waters, what imagery does that have. And of course, if you link that um, with Matthew and where it is in the structure of Matthew, where he's called, uh, there's one greater than Solomon here, son of David. What is Solomon associated with? King Solomon associated with what? The Mishalim, the, the, the Proverbs, the parables. So here you have God enthroned on the water, like in the Psalms, speaking the parables, and he's not just describing the kingdom, though he is doing that. Yeah. He's creating it by the vehicle of the word. Yeah. 
It's an inauguration. It is. Yeah. The king is here. That's he right. And he is therefore, his word is liberating some yeah. and hardening others. So the fundamental purpose of these parables then for the one whose eyes are being opened is they are coming to see that Jesus is the Messiah. They're coming to see that Jesus is the king, that he is the one who is worthy of their full and complete devotion of heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the disciples are getting it. I mean, that's yeah. the that's the point, right? You you see it. They're saying, "Well, why Jesus are you talking in parables?" Like you know, mm-hmm. they're believing because God has opened their eyes to see Jesus for who He is, and mm-hmm. they their faith is in Him. Others are not. I do want to highlight, um, though, just just some of these elements, and we were talking about this some before. Feel feel free to give your feedback, but Matthew in particular. Uh, I think you do see a dual purpose going on in one sense in these parables to, again, like we said, those who are already believing and those who are hardening their hearts. Verse 10 says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And then verse 11 again says, And he answered them, To you it has been given uh, to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Okay, that's election. That's what we're talking about there. We're talking about the doctrine of election, that you are either given the knowledge to understand Jesus for who he is, you're either given the secrets of the kingdom, you're either given knowledge of the mysteries that have been revealed in Jesus, or you're not given it. And so there's two groups of people. There's the elect and there's the non-elect there. And there's no other way that you can twist that verse. I mean, it's so clear. And then it says, For to the one who has, more will be given, and to he who has an abundance... Uh, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the one who has been given the mysteries, more is going to be given. He's going to continue to grow in knowledge, grow in wisdom, grow in understanding of how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. There's going to be an ongoing growth, but the one who's who's uh, not is not going to have that same that same experience. I hate using the word experience yeah, in yeah. Utah, but it just happened. <laughs> But verse 13 says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. I think what I just want to make sure is clear is that Matthew, I think, is trying to really clearly articulate this tension that we see throughout the scriptures, this paradox of God's sovereignty, his electing power, and human responsibility. So he doesn't want to claim that those who are in unbelief are totally passive in their unbelief. They're actively unbelievers, right? They are choosing to reject the word of God. And that's what makes them responsible. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. They're not seeing. They, they see they do not see. They hear they do not hear, nor do they understand. Uh, so I just want to read a little bit of D.A. Carson on this. Carson says, the reply to the disciples' question in verse 12, or verse 10, is thus given in terms of election in verse 11, which is further explained in verse 12. Verse 13 recapitulates the reason for speaking in parables, but now frames the reason, not in terms of election, but in terms of spiritual dullness. Matthew has already given Jesus' answer in terms of divine election, and now he gives the human reason. So I don't think it's wrong for us to recognize these two things in tension in the scriptures and to say we don't know exactly where or how they work. But I think one of the points I want to make in light of that is as a believer reads this parable, 
of the sower, it's going to have an important meaning for them according to what God has already accomplished by opening their eyes to understand what it means, which, which is to say, as a believer, when I read this parable, I'm thinking, I want to be fertile soil. You know, I, I want that to be this, the state that I remain in. The only reason I'm thinking that way is because God has opened my eyes to understand the truth. But then there's also this objective meaning that unless God has done that, I'm not going to be the fertile soil. Right. Right. So I guess that's what I mean with there can kind of be layers of meaning. Whereas you mm-hmm. read this parable as a disciple, you're going to be growing in a knowledge of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple means to be one who is fertile soil. It means you're not going to let the. So when you're teaching this to believers, right, you're saying, don't be thorny. Like, don't, don't be, don't let the world choke it out. As you were even running through all those different beautiful meanings, that ought to hit the believer again and again and say, like, am I just being swept up in the world? Am I letting the cares of this world choke out the word? You know, so there's an effect that the parable has on a believer that it's not going to have on an unbeliever because they're not the fertile soil that's being referred to in the parable. I don't know if that's helpful or makes sense at all. I think so. Absolutely. Um, And I agree. The angle that I think annoys me the most with how they cover it is that faith itself is not treated as the gift that it is. Yeah. Um, so, for example, when they say determine personal application That's right. uh, on their seminary manual for this parable, they say, think about the condition of your own heart and which of the four types of soil best describes you. If the spiritual condition of your heart is not currently what you want it to be, know that you can change. How about what God wants it to be? Yeah. So right, I mean, it just the, it's so yes. You, so. <laughs> the issue is that they are missing the fundamental meaning that Jesus is getting at, which is that your eyes have to be open, and that's a gift right. that you receive. He he's the one that gives us the new heart, right? All yeah. the new covenant passages we've talked about before. Uh, based, this is the manual still. Based on what you have learned to ta- today, take a minute to ponder what you can do to improve the condition of your heart. I, I, <laughs> uh, what? Yeah. What will you do to invite the word of God into your heart? What actions will you take to improve the condition of your heart? Uh, it, it keeps going. What obstacles will you ask the Lord to help you overcome? Yeah. How about what obstacles God will overcome for you? Yeah. Like it's so. It, it, in other words, they they it's it's so self centered. They don't have a fall. They don't have original sin, and it it becomes the, the surprise to them is that people don't listen. Yeah. Whereas we look at, we, we say, you know, Romans 9, Jacob have I loved, Esau I hated. Mm-hmm. Which one's surprising? Yep. It's the first one, right? Post-fall, we're all rebelling. We all deserve death, right? And, you know, it's amazing he loves any of us at all. I mean, um, he's the king and he's pardoning some. Yeah. We're all on death row. He's pardoning some. Mm-hmm. And just because he pardons some, it doesn't mean everyone has a constitutional right to the same privilege. Yeah. So it's the the... They don't, and and therefore, well, and therefore, the Christ, the glory of Christ here, and just the layers of meaning that are there, right? The kingdom being a kingdom of the word, and this kind of, you know, personalization of here's the king enthroned, giving parables, um, and setting free people, but there's still this mystery of why not everyone yeah 
but it's that's up for him to decide. That's not up for everybody yeah. <laughs> themselves to decide. And so, yeah, I mean, it, right. where where I agree with the manual is it says, you know, evaluate your heart. Why is it important that you learn where your heart is or something like that? That's not an exact quote. I'll put it in the show notes. But I agree with them on that. Yeah. But the the the, the solution is to repent and plead for God to give us a new heart. Yep. It's not to, you know, create this workout program by kind of proof texting certain phrases from yeah. this parable. Well, I think maybe simply getting to the heart of it is if the fertile soil is the soil that receives the word. Yeah. What is the word? Mm-hmm. And if the LDS church is defining the word as being that which the apostles and prophets are currently teaching you and anything and everything that they say, and that's their meaning of the word, but whatever that word is has contradicted the word that we find as being the absolute standard of truth in the Bible, then are you receiving the word as fertile soil if it's not the word that's being talked about in Matthew's parable? Right. Yes, and when people do hear, it's because God grants the ears to hear. Yeah. And that whole layer of meaning is gone. Yep. Instead, it's... You only receive the word. Yeah. By what we call the doctrine of regeneration. Exactly. And and these parables are useful because here is our king, our expectations are warped, and he's teaching us with the parables that he's trying to give us some intellectual handles on what the kingdom is like. And um, so it's a kingdom of the word, of the word, and the parable is a parable of, about receiving the word. And it's a promise of what God is doing in Christ and will continue to do. Yeah. You know, why why can he grant this to some people? Well, the cross is coming. He's going to pay the penalty right. for his people. And none of that, it wasn't mentioned once. Yep. None of the context for any of this. Yep. And and therefore, you know, there's not even a sense. I mean, it reminds me of Romans 4, right, where um, to, to kind of riff off of Romans 4, right, where uh, Abraham believed, right, Righteousness was given to him, and he says, "I mean, this is the God who gives, you know, um, life to the dead and calls into existence things that aren't." There's this sense that through the proclamation of the word, um, there's a new creation going on for some people, right? And that it's just beautiful, and it's I'm, I guess I'm just sad to see that instead it becomes about how loyal you are to. The current leadership and yeah, or or even to uh, Joseph Smith and yeah, his yeah. teachings because this is just a quick note, and then we're already out of time, so I'm going to throw it over to you for last things. I know you should see the look on Skyler's face. Wow, and it's very sad. But uh, I was reading some on the they actually in the individual and family manual they post a link to some teachings of Joseph Smith on the parables, and there was there was this bit on. Uh, man, I'm actually wondering if I note, took a note of this. I don't think I did, unfortunately. Um, let me just look real quick and see. Uh, oh, yeah. Ooh, I did. Good. Okay, so, all right. So this this is uh, just a very brief parable of, of the hidden, hidden treasure. And again, we're just making the point that if you get the, if you get what's being received wrong, um, which is the kingdom of God, right? And it's it's 
invaluable nature as being an absolute treasure to you, you're receiving Christ as all. That's what it means to receive the kingdom. It means that Christ becomes all and everything to you. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I think any believer that reads that is going to read that and understand that's what happened to me. Like, that's what happened to me when I received and believed. When I had the eyes and the ears and and I was granted faith, I would have given up anything and everything just to receive Christ, right? Just to receive him as supremely valuable, as a supreme treasure, as that which I wanted to hold and cling to as more tightly than anything else. Uh, look at how Joseph Smith uses this verse. He says, uh, and this, this is him commenting directly on this verse. He says, uh, let us take the Book of Mormon, which a man took and hid in his field, securing it by his faith to spring up in the last days or in due time. Let us behold it coming forth out of the ground, which is indeed accounted the least of all seeds. But behold it branching forth, yea, even towering with lofty branches and godlike majesty, until it, like the mustard seed, becomes the greatest of the herbs, and is truth and its truth and is sprouted and come forth out of the earth, and righteousness begins to look down from the heaven, and God is sending down his powers, gifts, and angels to lodge in the branches thereof. What's the treasure hidden in the field? Oh, it was the Book of Mormon, of course, and everything that it teaches and everything that I'm teaching you now. So the treasure's not Christ, right? It I mean, somehow it's turned here into the Book of Mormon. And yeah. Yeah. There you go. Man, do what you want with that one. Well, <laughs> what else you got for us over there? Too much. I guess this I will know. be a lengthy bonus episode. Um, so the it, look of shock I, on your yeah, face. I, I got a little depressed when I <laughs> told you we we're yeah, needing to wrap it up. Yeah. Well, in the in the manual, I guess we'll set up for the bonus episode. In the manual, it says to compare this parable to Lehi's vision, um, and Alma thirty-two. And I wanted to go through and show how even in the most Christian-sounding thing they have yep. are absolute poison pills to get you away from the real Jesus. Mm. But on a, a more positive point, just on stuff that we've already covered, um, one thing uh, Joel Marcus um, points out that I really appreciate is if you look at um, Mark and Matthew and compare them, that, that gap of the title— parable of the sower. Um, there's a lot of theology there. Um, let me just read some of this. So he says there's three levels of meaning he sees there. Um, he says this is an intentional gap in the narrative. This is a commentary on Mark, so that's the primary text. But he says a point that has been left obscure to engage the reader's attention and thought to point to the central concern of the parable. I don't know if it was the central one, but it is a central one. And this was... Um, a Jewish rabbinic technique sometimes mm. is to explain all except maybe one main thing because he's trying to engage you. Think, wait, why didn't he explain that? You know, really focus in on that. Um, of course, the sower being Christ, that would make sense. Uh, he says, for in the apocalyptic Mark and worldview, the identity of the sower of the word of God is not a simple matter since proclamation is not an autonomous human action in which a person merely decides to open his mouth and form words about God. It is rather a complex act in which the divine and human factors are inextricably and confusingly mixed up together. I wouldn't say confusing, but 
uh, mysteriously maybe. On one level, that is to say, the mark and sower proclaimer is God himself. As in many Old Testament passages that speak of the powerful divine word, and that's clearly one thing that's going on here, is there's a sense in which Yahweh is sowing again, and of course Jesus is, to repeat ourselves. Second level, sowers Jesus, points that out, in which the Jesus teaches, speaks, and proclaims the word. Um, one thing, too, um, that I thought was really interesting is um, her name is uh, Morna Hooker. She makes this really cool point on this parable as well um, that I'll insert here really quick, where she, she points that, you know, in verse 3 it says, listen, and that could call to mind like the Shema, that kind of format for what he's saying. Hero Israel. His evidence, um, let's see this, uh, the language does at the very least indicate the authority with which Jesus is said to have spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, furthermore, it might well have evoked in the minds of Mark's readers the command to hear and therefore to obey the demands of the speaker. But whereas Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 required its hearers to love God with heart and soul and strength, the parable of Jesus calls for wholehearted response to Jesus himself. The word that he sows is the word about himself. And it will take only one short step for the evangelist John to identify that word with Jesus. I like to show where Mark and John agree because yeah. if you get out there in post-Mormon land, that's where they're going to aim. So I wanted to arm you with that. I think that's fascinating. So it's God, it's Jesus, yes. Third level, this is so cool. And this is relevant to what you do on uh, the Lord's Day, Brendan. Yeah. The sower is the preacher whose proclamation of the good news will continue Jesus' own announcement of it. Jesus' words, then, are not just his words, but God's, and they will become the words of the Markan community. The blending of these three aspects of the proclaimed word is made clear by 13.11 in Mark. Hmm. When the Markan Christians are called upon to bear witness to their faith, quote, it will not be you who are speaking, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that is God's breath. But equally, according to one eight, a baptismal gift of Jesus, Thus, 4.14 does not just describe something that happened once upon a time back in the bygone era of the historical Jesus, but something that continues to happen in the Markan present as the Markan community carries on Jesus' proclamation of his word, even beyond his own death. The sower is sowing the word. He points out the tense Mark uses. And it just reminded me, once again, this, you know, there's one greater than Solomon here who's giving us Proverbs, you know, this kingship. Um, which even ancient um, Gentiles would have known. A- ancient Mesopotamian kings were known for their wisdom, right? And then we see in the Old Testament, right, this personified wisdom that was the means by which God created the world, right? Yeah. Um, but this kingship language, I really like the Shorter Catechism, and then I promise I'll stop. Oh, no, it's good. Um, it, where it's in the Shorter Catechism, it, it asks, uh, what offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? This is question 23. Answer, Christ as our Redeemer executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. 24. How doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. How doth Christ Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once suffering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Hmm. 26, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? This is what came to mind, especially 
with these parables. Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself. Once again, he's not just describing the kingdom. What he's saying is creating it. Mm-hmm. He's creating it through the word in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And I just think, once again, his kingship and that Christianity is really a religion of the word and always has been. Yeah. Go back to Sinai. Look at Deuteronomy 4 and 5, right? Don't use images. Don't depict me. The manual, every other line is draw a picture, right? Yeah. Draw, show a video, yeah. show a picture. This is very much an impressionistic, picture-oriented religion in LDSism. Yeah. But biblical faith has always been one of hearing mm. and that the word is what the Spirit uses, right, to convict us of our sin and free us uh, for salvation by, by faith in Christ, yeah. who's the one who provides the salvation. And it's not primarily a ritual religion. It's not a religion that, well, the words are nice, but really it's our temple ordinances that matter. Yeah. By the way, that's where Christianity goes wrong, is when the rituals start taking more precedent than they should. Yeah. Um, you know, the, that's right. Right? It, it's not that there isn't a sacramental aspect to Christianity, yep. but it's not primarily that. And it never has been, it never will be, and it never should be. Yep. So if, if once again, liturgy becomes primary, it starts losing focus on the Word. And therefore, you Christians that do that start losing, start stripping themselves of the Word that actually is the means by which God speaks to His people. That's right. That was good. Well done. I love this parable. I'm going to end it. Okay. Because we need to end on that note. So <laughs> push a button. Make a stop. All right. Give us I time. You, reflect on that. Thanks for listening. Next week, we will be looking at Matthew 14, Mark 6, John 5 and 6. We'll see you then.